I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Bound. My what was for- that trailer? What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> oh my goodness. This is an example of Warner Brothers don't know how to sell anything. Hold on, that's the first thing I'm going to be talking about, so let's just go. <laughs> This is a commissioned episode backed by Alexa Pluto Burns Vargas, whom you'll have heard on our Matrix sequel shows, and also by extremely vocal community member Chris Finnick. With us once again is Victoria Luna B. Grieve. Hello, Victoria. Uh- Hello. I'll have to thank Alexa for, for that one, because I've needed a reason to watch this movie, and oh, oh my. So you hadn't seen this until recently? Until literally this morning, actually. Whoa. So, so yes. you're getting all this of this. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. Alexa. Now, usually we play the trailer immediately, as soon as I say, welcome to School of Movies, but this one is really important to showcase how the studio genuinely had no idea how to promote this movie. It starts off okay, kind of, but it just descends by the end. And the editing, the editing is like, hey, like, totally rad. Like It's like, much like Jennifer's body and Tank Girl, this was mistakenly aimed at teenage boys who really would feel uncomfortable watching this movie. But if you look at the imagery and the totally tubular green text at the end, it seems as though uh, the studio thought that this movie was hackers or something. Me stealing's always been a lot like sex. <clears throat> Two people who want the same thing, they get in a room, they start to plan. It's kind of like flirting. You're having second thoughts. I'm just making a point. I want to see the money. It's over $2 million. Welcome to the family. You're amongst good people here. I have a tattoo. Would you like to see it? These people are serious. Johnny, it's making too much noise. Here. God damn you, Cypher. Put it in his mouth. Caesar's gonna get the money. He's gonna bring it by the apartment. He's gonna count it. Where's it now? It's in a case on his desk. It's perfect. The best things in life are free. Susan Keaton for the ten Where's my money? I want what's mine. I want the money. Where's my money? That's what I want. We'll be rich. All night long, I listen to the sound of money. Jennifer Tilly. Gina Gershon. Joe Pataliano. You don't want to shoot me, do you? Do you? I know you don't. Caesar, you don't know. Bound. It was Caesar, all Caesar. You made me help him. You have to help me. It's like, like it ends on like a super high speed train shot. There's no train in this movie. It's really wanting to lean into the like heist kind of fiasco that's mm. the back part of this movie, but 
even the, the trailer makes it that like money is the most important thing when it's not. And they give away like one of the last shots of the movie, which is like criminal. Mm. Can we send these people to movie jail? Cause that is criminal. I think they've only just got out of movie jail. They were jailed for making that trailer. It's been 25 years. Let's let oh, them go home gosh. to their families. <laughs> Look, I'm I, I am I am definitely all about abolishing the police state, but some people should be in prison. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, so uh, contrary to what you just heard on that trailer, folks, Bound is fairly easy to describe. Blah. Bound is fairly easy to. Blah. Unlike what you just heard. Hmm. So, uh, despite what you just heard on that trailer, there, folks, Bound is easy to describe and easy to watch. The devil is in the tiny details. Violet, played by Jennifer Tilly, with her breathy baby doll voice, is a gangster's mole on the arm of Caesar, a threatening and eventually a rabid Joe Pantaleone, whom from now on we will be referring to as Joey Pants. Goddamn you, Cypher. Then <laughs> Corky. I mean, if you saw The Matrix, you were like, hmm, I wonder who... The, Who is the dodgiest person in these four Who's walls? going to betray the team? <laughs> anyway, then Corky takes up work in the apartment next door and starts repairing and repainting the place. With a big money deal going down, Violet seduces Corky and the pair hatch a plan to steal the money in a way that gets Caesar blamed. Then they can run away together and be free of all this mobster crapola and their mutual shady pasts. The twist is that Corky is a butch lesbian being played and positioned within this film very much like a guy by Gina Gershon. Now, as we said on the Matrix Reloaded show, this movie was a 1996 proof of ability for the Wachowskis. They had to make a clear statement to Warner Brothers that they could construct a workable film with a $6 million sensible, economical and immediately professional shooting process so that they could be trusted with 10 times that much money 63 million dollars in 1998 to make the matrix they were you know they came to warner brothers with this very ambitious script and they were like look we don't know if you can direct or not and so they had to prove it and sadly the film only just made its tiny budget back bearing in mind that the big films of 1996 were independence day twister and mission impossible even Ape in a Hotel feature, Dunstan Checks In, made more box office than Bound. It made like nine million. Fortunately, making money was not a prerequisite of this endeavor in, in order to pass the Matrix building test. Thank, th you know, history is thankful of that. But when you watch Bound, especially as we did on the amazing Arrow Films Blu-ray this morning, you recognize so much precursor imagery and you hear so many sounds that evoke their first massive blockbuster. Just three years later was when they struck it big with The Matrix. The Wachowskis brought in cinematographer Bill Pope, fresh off Army of Darkness, and he gives it a very similar look. I, you know, I, I even said you know, that these two could show up in a later Wachowski movie. Frankly, they could show up in The Matrix and you'd be like, I knew there was something about this movie in this world that we're, be we're being fed. On a side note, Bill Pope was cinematographer on Shang-Chi last year, which is why the choreography in that film felt and was framed more like the first three Matrix movies than I'd say the fourth one was, which was photographed by John Toll and Danielle... Masakesi. 
Zack Steinberg edited the film along with the first three Matrix movies and Speed Racer. Resurrections was Joseph Jet Sally, another com- so basically a completely different editor for Matrix Four. Like this is why Bound feels more like Matrix than than Four did, which by the way is not necessarily a, a poor reflection on Four. Just it illustrates why it did have that different feel. Likewise, the score for the first three Matrix films and Bound was Don Davis, and Resurrections plays differently again. It's scored by Tom Tikva and Johnny Klimak, though Dane Davis has been their sound editor now for more than 25 years. So they've always had the same sound editor, including uh, he worked on uh, Resurrections and Speed Racer and Jupiter Ascending and on TV with Sense8. So watching this film, Bound, will evoke familiar feelings. Uh, Whoa. Deja vu, including a preponderance of dark outfits and pale flesh in old buildings that feel strangely labyrinthine. Like you don't, you don't feel like you can easily get out of this particular apartment building. It feels like you're at the core of it the whole time, and that getting out is going to be quite tricky. There's also a lot of deep dark shadows juxtaposed against stark textured whites. A mix of deep greens and threatening maroons are in there as well, but they're not at the foreground of the aesthetic. Mostly it's black and white. And on, honestly, I think it was um, I think it was Bill Pope who came in and sat down with the Wachowskis and noticed the, uh, that they had a copy of the graphic novel of Sin City on their desk and said, well, Sin City, that's legit. So mm-hmm. they, everyone here in that room was ahead of their time in feeling like that Sin City could be made. And it feels like the fact that uh, the Wachowskis got Steve Scroce to do the storyboarding on the original Matrix then kind of paved the way for the very comic booky direction on on uh, the you know obviously Frank Miller um, aesthetic of Sin City and Three Hundred and Three Hundred Rise of an Empire and Sin City a Dame to Kill for mm. and the Spirit. I do feel like <laughs> you could add a Wachowski movie set design to the question what's black and white and red all over nice mentioned that Bill Pope was uh, on Army of Darkness, and that makes so much sense having watched this movie. The cinematography has a lot of, like, Raimi's deadite vision kind Mm. of stuff at times when they want to really reinforce the the paranoia that's going on. There's a lot of close-up shots of of dramatic back-and-forth conversations in this, which, again, feels very noirish. But like like you're saying, uh, Victoria, there's a lively camera that leaps up high and looks down, engaging in frequent zoom-ins to put you right there in the pin-sharp super close-ups, whether that's a close-up on a vulnerable part of a person's body, because I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of fingers, there's a lot of faces and ears and things, and, and it just... It, Considering something that happens in the first act of this, it makes you worry about each extremity. <laughs> and Or whether we're zooming in on something cold and hard, an objective piece of this gay crime puzzle. So like uh, the briefcase or the gun or the glass with yeah. the ice in it. They're like The Wachowskis work on a pa- almost macro level photography is fantastic straight from the get-go. They really had vision on how to make this striking and stand out, which, of course, makes it all the more galling that no bugger saw this. Well, there's, I've noted that one of the things that the Wachowski seem to really love is these odd angles that 
really make you think about the perspective that you're getting this story from. Mm. There's overhead shots that make uh, horizontal angles look vertical. There's ground-up shots that then give you this, these looming ceilings and looming walls making you feel trapped. They've got uh, movement shots where you connect two scenes or two people in an unusual way, so the zoom through the phone wire or mm -hmm. uh, the camera panning over the top of the wall when um, Corky's on one side and Violet's yeah. on the other. Actually, that leads to my first question. We begin with the framing device of this long vertical shot of like a 30-foot-high cupboard uh, with Corky <laughs> stuck, tied up and gagged in at the bottom and as the camera sort of slowly pans down to her. So what does this achieve in terms of our viewpoint? Because we occasionally cut back in the middle of the film and Corky's still there. So like m until Corky gets out of that cupboard, the whole film is in flashback. Mm. Well, one mm. of the first things that, that struck me about this particular shot is how they're opening with everyday objects. This is a, this is a closet. These are clothes and hat boxes and, and shoes. shoes and shoes. lighting stems. But because of the angles, it makes everything look unusual and weird. Mm. Well, and, and oppressive because we, we are, we open to a scene, a, a shot of our lesbian, one of our lesbian main characters being literally held in a closet that is so terrifying to look at and so claustrophobic in the way that it's shot. I mean, this opening scene, uh, you noticed the the labyrinth tattoo, which is of course like a, a lesbian symbol uh, from it's the battle axe on Corky's arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's specifically like this Grecian battle axe. It was this whole thing. It was technically reappropriated from neo Nazis, and the lesbians took it, which is great. Um, but you can also see a couple of her other tattoos that look more like um, like poke uh, poke and stick. Uh, what do they call them? Stick and poke tattoos, like prison tattoos. Mm -hmm. So like in the and there's like a barbed wire around her other uh, uh, bicep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, at the very beginning of this, I, I my notes are, this opening is very confusing, this closet is very scary, this person is very lesbian, and I think she was in prison. And that's in the first, like, two minutes. Correct on Talk all things. visual story. I'd say except confusing. I'd say it's, it's fairly um, straightforward. Well, we, the one thing it's missing yeah. is, so, I guess you're wondering how I ended up stuck in this <laughs> closet tied up. Well, it's a bit of well, a the, Sunset Boulevard opening. The confusing part was at the very beginning when it almost feels like the beginning of Star Wars, yeah. where we're like, uh, I should say, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, mm. where you're you're going underneath like a model, except we're sort of flying what seems to be underneath some kind of weird like sci-fi thing. And then as it pans down, you realize it's just clothing. Uh, and it really like helps lend a monolithic like structure to the area that is oppressing Corky. Uh, and, and then it's not for like till half the movie when you're like, wait a minute, we started, it, this is a flashback. Mm. Like, Absolutely. And the, the imagery that this sets up as well, although it won't become apparent until uh, later on in the film, is these are Violet's clothes and they feel like armor and uniforms and things that she doesn't wear because she wants to that she wears because she has to mm -hmm. and jennifer mm -hmm. tilly when she was talking about the clothes that she was given to wear did specifically refer to especially the red velvet dress as violet's sex pot uniform <laughs> nice um so now can you ladies tell me about the initial casting possibilities does anyone know who was originally going to be playing corky and uh everyone in hollywood from the sounds <laughs> it's a big movie <laughs> Uh, I remember seeing that Linda Hamilton was mm -hmm. expected to play Violet, mm -hmm. and I, 
I don't know how this movie would have been with her. It probably would have been fine. She went to Dante's Peak instead. Yeah. <laughs> I, I oh. believe that the way it initially played out, they were shopping. So they, they as you said, Alex, they, uh, the Wachowskis were told that their Matrix script wasn't going to go anywhere until producers trusted that they could make a movie, which they hadn't yet proven. They were known mm. as script writers and script doctors in Hollywood at this point, but not anything beyond that. And so they wrote this script and the the people that it went out to first, I'm, I'm not sure whether it was them or the producers that had Linda Hamilton in mind to play Corky, but then when they gave her the script, she wanted to do Violet because she wanted to do something that would be a bit more of a stretch. Mm. And mm. to her, having come off the back of uh, particularly Terminator 2, Corky was was sort of in that role and she thought that was why they'd gone to her for that one but she preferred the the role of Violet and then the same thing happened with a couple of different actresses and apparently the the Wachowskis were getting a bit pissed off at this point because the actresses kept telling them well I want to play whichever one they hadn't done before because they wanted to stretch themselves so they were being cast because you'd be appropriate as this character and they were going I want a challenge I want to be that character exactly and then once they got into the loop that then included Jennifer Tilly Tilly originally wanted to play Corky and from the sounds of things apart from Linda Hamilton everybody who got the script and read it read both parts and said I'd rather play Corky Mm. and so they then had this kind of balancing act to do where they knew they wanted Jennifer Tilly they knew they wanted Gina Gershon because they screen tested really well together but they'd given them both the impression that both parts were kind of up for grabs (laughs) so when they came in to work together on the first the first day Gina Gershon was effectively saying she was better for Corky because she already had all the piercings in her ears <laughs> put the tools in. <laughs> Side note, yeah, the, uh, the the little lockpick earrings that she has, which are just functioning lockpicks hanging from her ears, I love that as a touch for the character. Just the fact that she sort of, on at least two occasions, she moves in, she kneels down, the camera comes with her, and she just goes to her ears and it's like like someone who's so visually like you can tell so much about them from just this little accoutrement that they have and also the fact that she does not wear them all the time she wears them when she thinks she's going to need them the rest Mm -hmm. of the time and particularly when she's working she has these um studded sleepers instead which are an awful lot safer yeah Mm -hmm. i immediately looked up to see if i could order a set of them (laughs) (laughs) just in case you need to pick a lock you know i I mean I know how to pick a lock. It's just, you know, sometimes I don't have my, my lock picks on me, so it'd be more convenient. It, it, you don't need pockets, which is very handy. Looking up on what the Wachowskis did before Bound, they did the script for Assassins. Yes. Which was... They are credited for the script for Assassins. Right. Apparently they did write an initial version of it, but by the time it got onto the screen, uh, Brian Helgeland had been given it to completely rewrite. They asked for their names to be taken off the credits and were refused. So it's stuck to them now, even though most of it is not their work. Brian Helglund was very up and down at this uh, period. Uh, He adapted one of the most dense uh, noir novels of all time, L.A. Confidential, and did a magnificent job with that uh, from uh, James Elroy's uh, version. And he also uh, adapted The Postman, which was okay. one of the worst films of the 90s. I've got something six inches thick. Let's give it to Brian Helgeland. Yeah. <laughs> 
so uh, yeah, uh, we uh, Jennifer Tilly wanted to play Corky. Uh, Marcia Gay Harden was on board for a while, and I think she got Joey Pants on board. <laughs> yeah, I think they they approached her. My speculation, although nobody said this, is because she did a film called Fever in 1991 that mm. involved um, sort of quite a bit of BDSM theming, and so they thought she'd be up for that right. that element of it. She, from the sounds of things, didn't fancy it herself, but got Joey Pantoliano, who was a, a close family friend of hers, to have a look at the script because she thought he'd be really good for Caesar. Roseanne Arquette was also uh, in the running after her turn as Jodie in Pulp Fiction. I don't think she'd have worked better than either of these uh, uh, women oh, in, in either role. They're yeah. fantastic. I'd, I'd they're so perfect. Anybody do yeah. who would be better, to be and for Caesar, uh, Jerry Pants, originally they were looking at Peter Gallagher and Christopher McDonald, who's that guy from Happy Gilmore and The Faculty, who's like, I eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast. Well, you eat pieces of shit for breakfast? <laughs> from the sounds of things, part of that was uh, Dino De Laurentiis, who was the, the lead producer on it. Oh, the one who referred to this uh, Joey Pant as a character actor. Yeah, he he wanted somebody who was more traditionally good looking, six foot tall, somebody who looked like they would fit Mm. with the mob. Not this ratty little dude. Not this little ratty dude. But again, that really sells the the character and how he responds. It's perfect, as we'll go into in a bit, where the the casting uh, across the board is pretty much spot on. Um, so, when we meet our heroines, uh, how would you describe them uh, beyond Corky's uh, uh, clever earrings? Like, uh, how, let's start with Corky, because uh, she's the viewpoint character for most of the film, even though she does kind of take a back seat and then a closet seat for the, m- almost all the second act, she's absent. Well, we meet them really in an elevator. That elevator scene. So I need to point out 40% of my notes are either the words holy shit or goddamn <laughs> to this whole movie, um, especially the first like act. But that elevator scene is so tense in such a sexual way mm-hmm. that I knew that, that we were going to be uh, in for a heck of a ride. My, my, partner Lynn whenever we were watching it is like oh I can see where the Wachowskis enjoyed the leather and the sunglasses even here because of, of um, Violet's outfit absolutely I yeah. see that too. like I said it's very matrixy mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, but just you you immediately know that there is this like electricity between them and it, interestingly enough to me that scene Violet looks a lot more dangerous almost predatory in a way that then how she acts for most of it which is is very you know appropriate obviously uh quirky being the main character is sort of set up to be this like tough lady got out of prison uh trying to like make ends meet was a real good thief definitely definitely got back muscles um but Violet is the one who's the actual femme fatale by the end. And and I think that that's, that's actually kind of telegraphed in this first scene because Corky is the one in the corner, like kind of the prey of the gaze in this scene while Violet's the one that is, you know, if, if she was a cartoon wolf, she'd be like licking her chops in a sense. <laughs> well, the tension immediately sets in because the way that film noir works... In most cases, it's a woman 
who is being kept by a vicious husband or a rich husband. He's either vicious and hateful or rich and clueless. He's never rich and clever. And there has every reason to kill him. The woman seduces a guy who is either the hero or the full guy or both. Then that male character does the murder and then the femme fatale the reason she's called a femme fatale is almost always because she goes, thank you very much, Miles, dear boy, and then drops him off a cliff and then walks off with the money. Like, the, mm-hmm. the like she's the one who gets away, and the reason that the hero's the full guy is because he fell for her dark, feminine wiles. So the mm-hmm. whole way through the movie, you're like, is Violet a straight shooter or not? And we won't spoil that, but it does, it has a cracking ending. It really does. Uh, the key thing I would say about Corky, and this this comes through, it starts in the elevator scene, but it does come through in, in a lot of the scenes where she it's just her that's being focused on, is that she is bored, and the impulses that she would normally lean into to take her out of that boredom are presumably the things that got her thrown in jail. Mm. So whenever something's going on, Uh, up to the point where she is firmly ensconced in the plan anything that's going on that seems to skirt around the mob and even getting involved with with Violet directly to begin with, she's kind of always got this leaning back going on so as you pointed out Victoria, she's in the corner of the elevator when she's uh, talking to Caesar in the apartment a little bit later and he's trying to give her the money she's hesitant, she's kind of holding her hands up she doesn't want to get involved, she doesn't want to take it it's it, the, the, but there's all this body language coming from Gershon, which just screams, "This is totally me, and I really want to be in this, but I can't because mm. that's the thing that got me in trouble last time." Yeah, mm-hmm. she she pays very close attention to her body language. She actually studied Sugar Ray Leonard, the boxer, uh, for how to move, and she went out of her way to watch Brando films and was trying to be totally inscrutable, where, in her words, you watch their face and you just don't know what they're thinking. Uh, sorry, and either she failed utterly or she's too good an actress, but I always know what Corky's thinking when I look at her face. She's incredibly expressive. And the way she holds her body with a level of confidence, like, she's specifically got guy training in sort of, like, how to walk around in a kind of a... Uh, like a different fashion to how she normally would. Well, one of the things that that sold Susie Bright, who was uh, the technical consultant for the uh, the film for like the lesbian bar and, yeah. and and how to portray sex between women in a way that would be that would work for yeah. women. Um, at, at the, the time, time, the Wachowskis were not particularly out, yeah. well versed yeah. in that. So the uh, <laughs> the. Um, the way she they made some to... bloody good guesses. It would oh, have been. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Tell me about it. There's there is a lot of female gaze in this. Believe yes, me. Yes. But the uh, whole hang on. thing. Female gaze or female gaze or female gaze. So it's it's gaze oh. spelled G A Y Z E. So so it's both yeah, at the absolutely. same time. It's gen- it's it's, it's it's female gay gaze. Gay gaze. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, but, and they're but very it, happy as well. So. And it, it, I love that uh, the the camera lingers in that opening scene on Violet's like legs very specifically. Later on, there's an incredible shot of Corky's back as she's painting the ceiling that made Lynn and I both go, 
oh, um, and uh, and I but I love that in the background when the scene is focused on Violet, Corky is absolutely checking out her ass and legs, and so for a lot of it, we can tell. Like, some of the camera shots are very specifically almost first person from the other character. And it's it's fascinating to see almost that other side of it reaffirming that that is the intent. And I loved it. <laughs> and that, uh, the, the first interview between uh, Gershon and Susie Bright, apparently uh, Bright had said to her, I really hope you're... you're intent here is not to play a stereotypical lesbian and she had sort of in her head that it was going to be this vegan in Birkenstocks that, mm. that Gershon would come with with in her mind that she would have to disabuse her of and she was like well I was kind of thinking James Dean Marlon Brando and Susie Bright was like yep yeah, you got it that'll work <laughs> Well, as we'll put a pin in that because I've got a lot to say about that later. The the, the two ladies get together really, really fast because uh, Violet, oh no, I dropped an earring down the sink. Could you help me? <laughs> and uh, it's uh, like she's already ingratiated herself by popping over for coffee. Mm. Uh, just again, um, Corky is not living in this apartment. Uh, she's renovating it. And uh, then she gets told by her boss to go over to that apartment and, and help this uh, lady get her earring out and Corky again because she sort of like has this crooked smile kind of like figures out oh I've like she, she can see through Violet's bullshit fairly easily in a way that by the way uh, Caesar can't yes, in almost every absolutely. instance. But part of that is that Violet fully intends for her to see through the bullshit yeah. because yeah. that's well, what this relationship yeah. is. About. It's an attempted seduction and it's 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 fairly blunt, but it <laughs> comes forwards in, a, in an extremely passionate, again, breathy way. Thanks. You seem uncomfortable. Do I make you nervous, Corky? No. Thirsty, maybe. Curious, maybe. That's funny. I'm feeling a little bit curious myself. That's a great tattoo. Beautiful Labrys. Are you surprised I know what it is? Maybe. I have a tattoo. Would you like to see it? A woman in upstate New York did it for me. Do you like it? Took her all day to do it. She promised it wouldn't hurt, but it was sore for a long time after. Couldn't even touch it. But now I love the way it feels. Here. Touch it. What are you doing? Isn't it obvious? I'm trying to seduce you. Which <laughs> winds up with them making out on the couch. 
At which point Caesar comes home and starts screaming, What the fuck is this? And to his credit, when he sees Gina Gershon is a woman, he goes, Oh, I thought you were a... Uh, <clears throat> pauses and then says, It's dark in here. As opposed to, I thought you were a guy! Which is exactly <laughs> what was in his head. He's got just enough airs and graces to be able to well, be have a smidgen of decorum there. He is constantly terrified of being made to look like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and I do want to point out that no man sees through Violet's game. They every man in the film is definitely like too wrapped up into the heteronormativity and the like kind of machoism related to the kind of mafioso personas that none of them see through Violet. She uses that feminine wiles to short circuit people left and right. Uh, to get what she needs. So uh, I wanted to ask, what version of this film did you watch? Uh, Because there is an R-rated version mm -hmm. and the unrated version. I'm going to go ahead and guess that we saw the unrated version that they couldn't release in entirety in America because we had the British Arrow video version. They specifically said in the commentary that there was a version... Which was a Laserdisc commentary originally. There was a version that went to the MPAA and the MPAA said no. Mm. And then they made some tiny tiny cuts it was the MPAA said yes but we got the one before the cuts were made. so we have the blu-ray that i have has the r-rated version and the unrated oh, version we, we we watched the unrated version and then went back to find out what in the world they had to cut it was less than 30 seconds of film mm -hmm. and the two differences we could find was in that scene where they're in the dark and uh Quirky, basically, can I say hand fuck? I mean, that's basically what she's doing. Yeah. You where, can say where, hand fuck. Yeah, where, where she's, uh, you know, hand fucking Violet. Uh, it goes on for a few more seconds, and you get to see just a little bit more of that explicitness, especially when she's feeling the tattoo, like there's a bit more there. And later on during the, frankly, incredible sex scene, um, mm -hmm. they change the the. They, they change the focus of the camera. They kind of like cut off and like zoom in a little bit on the camera. So you only see, you see less of the hand motions and uh, only Corky's breasts. While the unrated, you see a lot more of both of those things. That sounds like trying very, very hard not to make heterosexual men uncomfortable. Yeah. Apparently, though, when, like, they... they or heterosexual fully, women uncomfortable. They were fully aware when they were shooting this that they were probably going to have to make changes to it for, mm. for it to be accepted for the oh, yeah. market. The weird thing is, the market who would have gone straight after it would have loved every second of that stuff. Mm. So we want to well, make this film more less unappealing for people who won't like it. Good thinking. Yeah. Good Excellent thinking. Excellent tactic there. See also the trailer approach. Also, side oh, note, MPAA. Geez. Are you okay with that guy at the end who gets shot six times in the chest and gouts blood in slow motion and falls down? Oh yeah, that's fine. People get shot in the chest and the arm and the heart all the time and blood geysers out of them. But two women having consensual sex, that is fucking disgusting. You'd better cut some of that out. <laughs> the reason that they did the the single take pan around camera shot was so masterful by the way oh they, my goodness because they knew there would be bits of it that they would be asked to remove yeah but the idea was that they could then if necessary and as it turned out it wasn't necessary to do this part they mm. could just remove a couple of bits uh, they could splice in some 
body double shots of a butt or a shoulder or something to make it look like things were moving It would have to be a, a very specifically... It would have to be Corky's butt because Jennifer Tilly had a no butt clause, much like um, Britt Eklund in The Wicker Man. That's the thing. If you have a no butt clause, they can, unless it specifically says they can't, they can put a other body people's butts. In. Yes, as long as it's not your. Britt Eklund was very cross. Yes, she was. I think it was in her contract that they weren't supposed to replace her. With not her. even a pretend butt. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, her... I mean, she was more miffed that they took out her acting and singing. Either way, the actual <laughs> sex scene is fucking phenomenal and one of the yes. best shots I've ever seen in cinema. Continue. I, I, I the, the entire first act of this film is sexier than most pornography I've oh, seen. Oh, hell yeah. Like, I, I was just like, about to say, there. I have seen porns that were not this great, but then most people would respond, well, duh. Yeah, well, most yeah, porns I mean, are not obvious. this great because if the guy says anything at all, it's shut up, shut up, you <laughs> moron, shut up. But like, I, I have read... Like, like a pornography that is specifically for like this audience and oh my goodness I mean, but every single scene is just so tense with with sexual elements even the scene where quirky is taking off the the drain trap and the water's going everywhere oh, yeah. and it's it zoomed in on her hands film. and you can kind of see uh, Violet's legs in the background and it's just like there's distinct trickling oh. <laughs> there is very I, distinct trickling well yeah. a huge a huge part of why what I said about Gershon and Tilly being the ideal people to play this these roles is the chemistry between them is freaking incredible. And a huge part of that, because apparently uh, Jennifer Tilly, when she went back and saw the film in its, in its fully released version, was quite astounded by how much chemistry there was between them. Because she said she's, she's seen films she's done where she played opposite a man and they were having an affair and there was like zero chemistry. Mm-hmm. But a big part of She it, found her calling without even knowing well, it. Well, absolutely. But a, a huge part of it is to do with the way the dynamic between them is constantly shifting. There's mm. there's touches, They're both switches. There's there's questions, <laughs> there's statements, but there's this constant back and forward. The power balance between them rocks on its heels constantly and that movement is what creates that chemistry. There's nothing worse for chemistry in a relationship than a totally one-sided approach where one person is constantly firing something, anything at the other person and it's just not coming You are submissive. I am dominant. Okay. And that's the film the whole way through. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to because you know most films are following that sort of cultural concept of the the man being the kind of aggressor and the lady being the aggressee and then they'll sometimes flip it on on its head and and that'll be like oh so subversive but it's usually a fairly straight flip yeah Yeah, and if that's the case it's going to be guys wouldn't this be such a nightmare if girls were this pushy sometimes and and even then a lot of the times a lot of the times in movies and TV shows and such, when you do have a lesbian pairing, they still have it where one of them is more aggressive than the other so that it can be more, quote-unquote, relatable to, like, a heterosexual viewpoint. The old joke of, but how can you? How can two women have sex? Which one of you is the man? Uh, and, and in this one, it goes back and forth. There's reciprocation. It is that they... It starts out with Violet being very aggressive and quirky definitely like acknowledging that but also 
like leaning back into it. She doesn't just fall into a submissive position. She goes for it and, and they go back and forth throughout the entire movie. And it's incredible. It is, it is a shockingly wonderful depiction of two genuine, like, people who who actually feel attraction to each other i I made a joke while we were watching it that it is essentially depicting the perfect lesbian relationship first base is coffee second base is sex third base is planning a heist and fourth base is running away with the money (laughs) it makes perfect sense it's extremely relatable Ideally, but yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, there's a line that Jennifer Tilly has at, at uh, sort of early early on in this when she's doing things with Gina Gershon's hands, and she says, "You you may not be able to believe what you see, but you can believe what you feel." And that describe what she's doing, honey. No, it, <laughs> this finger's involved. We've established this. Blushing is it's very wet. <laughs> It's very wet. I've said this before. This effectively is is the essence of female as opposed to male gaze in movies. It's not necessarily about what the audience is seeing. Mm. It's about what they are imagining the characters are feeling. Mm. And that is... This is absolutely suffused with it. It is throughout. There's a... one, One of the... Okay. One of the sexiest moments in this for me is when, after this particular event, Corky is back in the apartment that she's renovating. She's stood in front of the mirror and she's cleaning her paintbrushes and she holds her hand up and looks at her fingers and the texture of the paint that she's just been cleaning off the brushes is reminding her of the texture of Violet and Mm -hmm. just the sheer revelling in that fact that is clear on her face. It is quite simply one of the horniest things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I could say that about most of the first act yes. of this. <laughs> like, I, I love when oh. she rolls over after they've uh, had sex and, and just mutters to herself, I can see again. Oh. It's been a while. Very, and then the very next scene is the first one that is like outside, fully bright, actually has like vivid colors compared to the muted colors and the monochrome and it's practically dancing uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's the first big like needle drop of the movie too so it's like ah oh, it, it's so perfect and uh oh yeah actually uh, another neat little bit that I, I noticed was uh, when she, uh, she as soon as they've had sex with each other there corky begins to sort of wonder were you just using me for that and that's all that there really was again she's quite uh sensitive and guarded and 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 like underneath that uh seemingly aloof exterior she's kind of mush and um she mutters that's one thing i uh always hated about uh having sex with women or relationships with women all the goddamn mind reading but ultimately what she's describing there is being empathic, being sensitive, being considerate, thinking at all, uh, versus the doofuses she clearly uh, um, spent her time with in high school while she was like, I don't know, am I gay or not? That, that scene also, whenever they're, whenever Corky is, is, gosh, I was going to say feeling her, feeling Vic Violet out, but that's, that has a different connotation yep. than what I intend. Um, Continue. But she, 
she's trying to figure out if Violet is really a, a lesbian. And it was weird as we were watching it because we're like, this is the scene is like weirdly biphobic in a way. But then we remembered it was 1996. And then it made sense again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I mean, there, there is... It, in the way they interact with each other, and especially, this is sort of one of the key points of this, is that they both have these self-protective instincts which clash, and their attraction to each other is enough to pull them into that state, but they are still going to have to do some independent reflection and, and determining where they want to go with this to get them back out the other side of it. So the fact that the fact that Violet has this self-protection in the form of layering and disconnection between herself and what's going on around her, and she is very honest with Corky about this, that to her mind, when she has sex with men, that's work. That's, it's totally separate. It's not something that she particularly enjoys. And it's, she, she talks about it in a similar way to when she talks about the violence that goes on in the apartment that is, is what's making her want to get out of this situation. She just switches off. She pretends she's not really there. This isn't happening to her, it's happening to somebody else. That, that sort of putting these walls up <clears throat> between herself and her exterior. Corky's layers and protective walls are internal. She's got these barriers within herself and that's what she has to overcome. And ultimately, they do end up meeting in the middle and finding out that the, the space in between those layers of protectiveness is where there is the potential for this relationship to flourish. Well, and, and it's, it's even that Corky, as we find out in really the next scene, is... It's because she's been burned before. They they describe doing a heist as like having a relationship, and we find out that her old partner is the one who burned her that got her sent to prison. So she she had what I would consider probably one of the worst falling outs with a partner uh, you can manage, you know, ending up with a five-year prison sentence. And she's kind of trying to trust again. She's like trying to learn if she can trust again to a certain extent. While, while Violet is has so many layers of protection around her that it's really hard to see the real her. And this sharpens all of the film noir... Uh, movements. So all of the all of the issues relating to trust and can I trust this woman? Uh, it just becomes uh, a case of worrying and waiting for the other high-heeled shoe to drop. This is why this what you said about there's a there's a huge section of this film that Corky really doesn't take part in because mm. she is shut away in the next door apartment or tied up in the closet. Ultimately, that particularly the staying in the apartment point obviously she doesn't have a lot of choice with the being tied up but having to stay there and trust Violet to be able to carry off her part of the plan that is huge for Corky being there and doing the actions that would not be a big deal for her at all having to stay and hold back and not burst in that's the bit that is the risk for her and there's the other side of it that as soon as they get the, the money out of that apartment Violet is trusting that Corky isn't going to just run off with the money and burn her. So it, so again, it goes. Can I trust this woman? Yeah, and again, it's reciprocal. It's, it's reciprocal, precisely, Victoria. So you've effectively got two femme fatales at this point. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, like, <clears throat> I'm amazed they hadn't. Like, honestly, there is another film that this reminds me of. Uh, Diabolique. Do you ever see that one? Or oh, there was a remake with Madonna as well. No, but I know the film. Why do I know the film? 
am aware of the Madonna remake. I am aware that most people think it's terrible. I've mm. never seen it. The original Diabolique is good. I know it was a Criterion thing. It was like a French film. Yep. I've seen parts of it, but I don't know why or the context. Oh, sorry. Le Diabolique, as in the, di the Diabolicals. Uh, it's a 1955 French psychological horror film directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau. The short of it is two women and one man, and it involves uh, blackmail and uh, staging murder, and then staging ghost hauntings, and in order to drive uh, one of them away, and you're like you're wondering about the allegiances. It's like, is it two? Is it one of the women and the guy against the other, or is it the other way around, or is it the two women against the guy? And like, it keeps you guessing all the way to the end. It's skillfully done, and I feel like that was the basis for this. No one ever mentioned it on the uh, production notes, but I feel like uh, Le Diabolique is the the version of this that they could do back during the golden age of cinema before they were able to do certain much more racy things in the 90s. But also, you got to understand what was hugely popular in the 90s, whether they made huge amounts of money or not, was crime films. They made so many films where someone gets taped up and, uh, and, and tied up and gagged and, and someone gets tortured and someone gets strapped to a chair and so, you know there were a lot of black comedies around it because uh, kidnapping was just comedy gold um, but within the context of the 90s Bound was actually considered a little unexceptional because there were so fucking many anyone remember Two Days in the Valley? No, that was the debut no. of Charlize Theron, and no one remembers it. So I wonder if this is one of those situations where the kind of zeitgeist of the film industry was just le leaning in a certain direction because the remake of Diabolique was the same year that Bound came out. Oh, that's and a shit show to go up against. So I really wonder if it's a kind of situation, in the same way that we got, like, what were those two stupid meteor movies that came out in the same year that oh, it was we like... Did that. Yeah. We did that uh, back in 2020. Oh, my and uh, Deep Impact. Yeah, and it, it was just because there was and like two a certain... volcano movies, Dante's Peak and Volcano, and two yeah. movies, Bugs Life and Ants. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's a certain like zeitgeist element to it, where it was like this is just because of events that had occurred years previous, like certain scripts came mm. to fruition at the same time. Yeah, you and find I wonder out if that it's a similar thing. No, almost always it was a script gets passed up by all the studios, then someone at one studio finds out that they're making a similar story and goes shit mm -hmm. we're gonna miss out if we don't have the same thing what was that script that had the meteorite bring it in and then they make deep impact quickly and get it out before Armageddon Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be something like that maybe maybe somebody saw the script for Bound and they but were like Fox, oh Marvel maybe we should remake everything. before then everything was just this artistic mecca and then Marvel came along and ruined cinema. Anyway. Oh, goodness. I've seen Mysteries. I grew up on Mystery Science Theater 3000. I know that's nonsense. <laughs> so uh, this is a small note. Um, and it's uh, this is a world where the sense of smell does not exist. There's two <laughs> major contrivances in the uh, film, which is not really a, uh, a critique, but... When Caesar comes in and Corky and uh, Violet have been making out hard on the couch, and he's like, what the fuck is this? Oh, uh, it's dark in here. He doesn't go, I detect the heady notes of sexual excitement in the air. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> they, were, they didn't have that long to get hot and heavy in it. 
Calendula stepped forward, her nose twitching. This apartment smells like engine oil. And Quim. Harry said nothing. But the other thing is then, uh, multiple people get shot in exactly the same place, and they bleed everywhere. And they pretty much cover the blood with a rug. So the, the mm -hmm. rug is soaked in blood. And then a bunch of different people come in and out and go, no, I certainly don't smell any blood. I so certainly I, don't I smell actually, pints and pints of very copper-smelling blood that's I, differently I have, everywhere. I have a thought about that, actually. Gangsters and police who encounter blood all the time and know what it smells like. Well, uh, blood's a very subtle smell, and uh, that open bar has been very well used. <laughs> Every single person Everyone's who comes in drunk. there, he says, can I make you a drink? And he opens up a strong smell. It probably smells more like alcohol than anything else. That is a very good point. And also, Alex, don't forget, you have got... A, Amazing a sense of smell, smell, which is far superior than the vast majority of people. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I mean, farting in an elevator makes me feel like I'm under attack. <laughs> Maybe you are. Get the fuck out of here! Like, oh, the... just wait. Before we do this, any of you boys want to tell me who farted? To <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. me. <laughs> To be fair, I can also smell blood. It's just that it's it's a subtle smell that can be covered up by other things yeah, that are strong. But it's there's so much blood. <laughs> it's like crimson peak up in this bitch. And, and she dropped a bottle of Glenlivet's 14 oh, year scotch on the floor yeah. earlier. It probably smells delicious. <laughs> and everybody comes mm. in through the front door, which means they would have to walk through that cloud of scotch, which is still there. Yeah, this place smells like scotch, blood, and. Um... Quim. So somebody's been having a good time. I've had look at that. I mean, come on. Or a very been? bad time. Oh, okay, right. so moving, moving the fuck on. <laughs> okay. So, Caesar, uh, who I described in my notes as uh, Joey Pants looks like he's dressed like a 14 year old boy in his dad's suit. Apparently, that is actually Joey Pants' suit. He brought his own. Oh, I feel terrible. Sorry, Joe. I mean, like, in the 90s, no, no, no. the tendency was towards the baggy. Here's the thing. Think about it. Dino De Laurentiis made him lose a load yeah. of weight. Yeah, everyone else was chomping on donuts, up. and he was like, no, you will eat the broccoli. And it's, yeah. oh, God. Like, I've actually, I've honestly always thought Dino De Laurentiis was a bit of a, a, a dodgy dude, but he said yes to bound, so thank you. Like, he effectively gave us, paved the way for the Matrix, yeah. so... In fact, see if you can find the, the actual quote from Jennifer Tilly, because it's hilarious the way she does it. But she says, Dino De Laurentiis said, So this cocky, she is a girl. And Violet, she is also a girl. I love it! Have three million dollars! I love it! <laughs> you know what? Um, you did it perfectly there. <laughs> I don't need to go digging around for Jennifer Tilly's version there. Like you just did it. But, but yeah, uh, Caesar is a young, angry boy playing at being a man. He's got this floppy 90s haircut that, thank God, we stopped doing that. I had it, the curtains on either side. He looks like somewhere between John Connor and Leon S. Kennedy. Um, and uh, it, just, it just makes him look less in charge of everything. And... To, like there's a certain point up to the middle of the film where you're like, this is gonna work. He's, you know, he buys Violet's bullshit, and they're gonna get this done. And then there's a sticking point when he goes, aha, and not that he's cottons onto them. He just starts double thinking of a way to get out of it. And it's a, 
relatively cunning series of possible contrivances, although by the end he kind of steps on all of his own plans by admitting way too much over the phone. Most of, of where Caesar falls down is in second-guessing himself. Yeah, that's true. And it's because he cannot, until he is given the actual, like, all of the evidence, believe that Violet would ever cross him. Yeah. He cannot imagine a world in which what has happened has happened. So Certainly he has not for a to. woman. Violet is absolutely 100% heterosexual. You can tell when she lies there silently while uh, he just <laughs> jackhammers away <laughs> while she stares well, at the ceiling and thinks about what she's going to watch and, tomorrow. And, and, and thinks of England or, or the Queen or whatever it is, whatever that saying is. But it, he hates Chris Maloney so much. And I, I shouted when I noticed, when I realized Johnny? it was Chris Maloney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris Maloney, who is, I know from uh, Law & Order S for you and oh, right. a half dozen other things I shouted whenever I realized that it was him um, but it, it's it's because he refuses to believe the reality around him and he must impose a, a version of reality that makes sense to him even if it doesn't actually fit all of the the facts mm -hmm. and just keeps digging him deeper and deeper it, it, it actually it reminds me i have um there's a really excellent tabletop role-playing game called fiasco that is essentially doing this like the the second and third acts of this movie are a game of fiasco and it really makes me want to play it now um it, it and joey pants is incredible in this movie i i read somewhere that this was actually his first like leading role mm. and he's so good at depicting the just descent into madness as he's trying to figure out what in the absolute hell is going on yeah. and how he can get out of it without dying and just digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper. There was a dog food a while back called Mr. Dog. Called Mr. Dog. And it was a small can of dog food for small yapper type dogs. And um, there was a big advertising campaign saying, buy Mr. Dog for small yapper type dogs. And maybe they'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> so that was fine. And then obviously there was a strokey beard meeting back at Mr. Dog headquarters. Well, we've sold, we sold but two cans of Mr. Dog, which some people do say, but two cans of Mr. Dog. Let's change the name. So they changed the name from Mr. Dog to Caesar. Now that's a bit of an image shift in my book of references. Mr. Dog, small dog, yes, you can see the sort of linky there. Caesar, Roman leader 2,000 years ago, small dog. <laughs> Bit of a strangled route up to that one, isn't it? Left at the traffic lights to get there. I think that's a three in the morning decision, that one. The... It's Caesar, of course, Caesar. Caesar. What about it? Yeah, yeah, fucking Caesar. He was a Roman leader. Yeah, small dogs are Roman leaders, aren't they? Yeah. Okay, all right, Caesar. And a huge part of, of what makes him shine in this part is that he had this instinct coming in as, as an actor. On the page, apparently, Caesar was not anywhere near as multidimensional as he ended up being. But what... Uh, 
that Pantoliano wanted to do was make sure that Caesar presented a worthy adversary to Violet and Corky. And so it didn't feel so much like they were running, they were steamrollering him, but that they actually had to work their way around him to get out. He gets really frightening by the end, not because he's in control, but because he's out of control. Oh, that, like Dawson oh, in that regard. There's an incredible shot in the end as he because he starts out just like this clueless dipshit and by the end he is genuinely frightening and there's a shot where he is it's like teeth, right it? it's his teeth yeah, yeah where he's, he's like, right up in front right of violet into, uh, and his, corky's face super uh, close up violet's face his teeth violet's are all bared and they're like they're they're like glistening and wet which up until now had a very different like connotation. He is in light, she is in shadow, and then he kisses her. And it was just as horrifying and unsettling as in Aliens, when the like little, uh, when the alien or alien queen is like right there in front of Ripley's face and like the little tiny mouth mouth attacks her. Like it was just as unsettling. It was shot in almost the same way. Like they, they lubed up his teeth with KY or something. It was horrifying. That, I'm never going to be able to get that image out of my head. <laughs> but, uh, thank you very much for the vivid uh, depiction. Um, also, he uses money aggressively and immediately. As soon as he meets Corky, he starts rifling through his wallet and then just hands her a little wad of sweaty money in a kind of, am I going to have to worry about you way? And she's like, no. And she takes his money in a kind of a... You can trust me, sir, way. But uh, yeah, I, I love the fact that Gershon doesn't actually have that much to say, but says so much it's with her body language. Performance, yeah. mm-hmm. I think one of the other things as well that I noticed about Caesar that, that really ties in with the whole visual storytelling thing is how he imitates. Hmm. He is a desperate wannabe made man or, or part of this hmm mafioso lifestyle. He wants to be the consigliere. He he wants to be something. He wants to be in and yet everything that he does is copied off one of the more experienced men Mm. that he is around. He copies the way they dress. He copies the way they behave. When he makes threatening gestures, he uses and imitates threatening gestures that he's already witnessed. And when he uh, goes to, his mind goes to torture, it's a sequence that we've already seen where a poor sap is having his head beaten against a toilet. Uh, I won't describe it in too much detail, but basically gardening shears and the dude's thumb uh, come into play and it, it just it becomes I'm going to ask you 10 questions and it's it's really upsetting to watch and I completely understand anyone who would turn away at that point but it's to tell you the film can get to this level of grisly and horrible so that when the our leading ladies are threatened you genuinely fear for their extremities and, and their lives and, and it's it's done so well because while he is trying to uh, basically do what he has seen before, he doesn't do it as well. He, that scene that you're talking about, he specifically says, I'm going to ask you 10 times. And it's like very like calm and collected. And it's, you know what the question is. And when Caesar is doing it later, he's a raving madman and he's trying to remember the line that was said earlier. And he says, I'm going to ask you 10 questions. It's like, okay, but there's only one question you want to know the answer to. Like, and then he leaves the shears on the floor, which allows Corky to escape later. Like he, every time he tries to do what other people have done to be this like hard ass made man, he messes it up. And it's one of the reasons why he hates Johnny so much. 
rich because Johnny has the lifestyle. Yeah. But Johnny he, was born into uh, it. Well, like, you could be jealous well, if you want, but ultimately it just comes down to luck. He was born yeah. the son of a major mafiosi who comes to this apartment to pick up a large amount of money that the ladies have now switched out for a suitcase full of newspapers. Yeah. And then what, what then happens is that uh, Caesar goes fucking ballistic and thinks that he's being screwed over by Johnny, points a gun at Johnny, then points a gun at Johnny's dad, who like is the brother of the guy who owns Chicago. Basically. And the maid guy's in the back there like getting ready to, to, to cap him one, and then just everything goes to shit. Uh, and he ends up shooting all three mobsters, festooning their blood over this apartment, which apparently doesn't smell of anything. It's due to his own ridiculous jitteriness. He then later tells, uh, uh, you know, the, when they're phoning up to say, where the fuck is the, you know, like, he, he, he says they're not here yet. As opposed to, all he had to say was, yeah, Johnny came in and he, he took the money and he went, but uh, I never saw Sal or, you know, the, the, the father and, you know, uh, what's up with Johnny? What's, like, like, make it that the money was here, it's now gone, we can't find Johnny. Not what he says, which is, yeah, I still got the money. Look at it right now. It's like, what the fuck are you going to do now, you asshole? Well, he, he wants to save face. He doesn't want anyone to know that he has lost control of that money because that money is more important to him than anything else because it's it's tied in with his reputation now. If, if, if his story was that Johnny came and took the money and then they all left, whenever they the people come in, they're like, well, well what happened to it? Where did it go? And it, like it doesn't give him as much clout and respect as if he had the money still and he was like, yeah, yeah, I still got it. I don't know what happened to these assholes. The, the, the arrangement was Johnny and, and whoever, who was the dad called? Gino. Johnny and Gino come and pick up this money and leave. That's all it really was supposed to be. So you just make it that that actually did happen, but it seemed quite hurried and maybe something was wrong with Johnny or something and you, you just... You say Gino wasn't there. You implicate Johnny by his exclusion. You kind of go with what was supposed to happen, but you, you are no longer part of the slowly clarifying picture of a power-mad, money-hungry son fucking over his father. A bunch of cops come in because they heard the shooting and the shouting. Ah, somebody called Somebody called them, who you think was Corky, right? I do. Uh, they say they, get a, they got a call from a neighbour in the building. And uh, Caesar mm. has a fucking gun in the back of his, his belt line. And it's like, what are you going to do? Kill two cops as well? I mean, they're just police. It's, it's Chicago police, too. I mean, come on. Good idea. Have both the cops and the mob after you. That's that's the best thing to do. <laughs> I think we can establish like, Caesar is not thinking straight. If you time. had the money, you might be able to escape and go dark, but that's you don't the, even have the he money. He can't do anything yeah, he can't, he's got the money. He can't escape. To and, and also, this is 1996, Alex. Yeah. There's not a functional difference between Chicago police and the mafia. It's fine. Actually, uh, Corky <laughs> says something along the lines of, uh, I think she actually said about uh, uh, mobsters, that they're like police, but they d they don't play by the rules and they kill anyone they want. And I was like... And they have unlimited funds. So, yeah. like, like the police then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, wow, this, this sure has aged uh, in a way. <laughs> but the police are right neighborly when they come along. They, like check heads and they're like so hey how, uh, sorry to disturb you sir this is clearly a place of, of uh, uh, above the borderline business but I did notice <laughs> that when Caesar offers them a beer in, a, in an attempt to throw them off the, the scent excuse the phrase uh, of, of what's been going on 
the the short white cop turns to the black cop as if to say, are you going to say yes? Because I'm not going to say yes unless you say yes. <laughs> he, he realises his partner is not going to say yes, and then he turns back and says, no, 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 sir. We're oh, come on, George. You've got to do this with every time we get a bribe. <laughs> you wouldn't even take cupcakes. But the, <laughs> but the, but one thing I noticed that I really, really appreciate... Dino De Laurentiis has me eating steamed chicken. <laughs> the, the, the torture scene... Which I, I still struggle with, even with what I'm about to say. Of the poor sap, or...? Of, of Shelley. Yeah. yeah. Shelley. I really appreciate the fact that even throughout the, that scene, the way it's shot and cut, we don't actually see much of the impact of violence. We see the consequences, but we don't see the blow. When they push him forward into the into the toilet, mm. his head, where it makes the connection, is just out of frame. When they do... Because it was a real toilet. They had no, no, no rubber no. toilet. I, and I appreciate that. But they the, also didn't have a rubber floor, so law and order yeah, fell to his knees, his knees on the yeah. wooden boards. And, and when the really horrible thing happens, you don't actually see the moment. It's all, it's the lead up and mm. then it's the immediate aftermath, but you don't see the actual moment. And when Shelley is killed, it's entirely off screen. You only hear about it mm. after the fact. Yeah. The only time you see violence in, in like, full view is the moment when Caesar shoots all the people in the apartment, which is shocking, and when the plan is well and truly fucked. Yeah. And at the end, with the, like, almost catharsis of the moment, as we'll get to, I'm sure. By shoots all the people, he doesn't shoot Violet. Or Corky. He shoots Gino, the mob boss dad and brother of the most terrifying, powerful man in New Jersey. And he shoots his son, Johnny, who's kind of astonished. And he shoots the bodyguard, whose entire job was to prevent exactly this happening. You had one job. Just the one. The uh, plan itself uh, is, is quite extensive and quite twisty, but it's all based around crappily predictable male behaviour and both women being overlooked. It's in the same way that uh, Ocean's 8 was predicated on they'll never suspect that it's these organised women. Uh, but the crappily predictable male behaviour all plays out. It's just that Caesar... Corky didn't know that Caesar was so neurotic, mm. that Caesar would immediately jump to the, the worst possible conclusion and would whip his fucking gun out as soon as the paper turned up. Yeah, and I, I personally think that part of this is to do with the fact, and this, this feeds into one of the things that I absolutely love about the plan, uh, and that is the focus on the scotch. Mm. So the, the, the opening frame, if you like, of, of what the, the women plan to do is all based around the fact that when Gino comes to the apartment, which he's only done a couple of times before, Caesar always gives him really good scotch. And this comes from Violet observing that the first time Gino came, they happened to have a bottle of Glenlivet in the apartment. That's what Gino chose to drink. And Caesar noticed his appreciation of that and I'm willing to bet from then on always has a bottle of Glenlivet in the house just in case Gino comes round 
and Violet Which is, is why when she drops the... Is it, is it the Glenlivet she drops? It is, yeah. yeah. The whole yeah. point being that she then has to leave the apartment to get some more some because more, they right. have to have it for, for Gino. Yeah. But Gino's again, got to have it. He's got to have the And again, scotch. this feeds This is all just under his... Victoria was saying about the reputation, mm. the, the, the way he is perceived by his colleagues, that he wants to seem important and like he always has the right thing for Gino. But... Part of where that comes from, in, in my, my theory is, uh, when, when somebody is in a, a relationship or a domestic situation or a, an environment where they are surrounded by threat and violence and aggression all the time, can't get away from it under any circumstances, you get very good at reading the details of situations, at being observant for when there are moments that you can get away with and when there are moments that you cannot get away with. However, Violet is also so used to Caesar's neuroticism that it doesn't occur to her to comment on it. Mm. And that's why Corky doesn't have a backup plan for when he goes into this self-questioning um, loop that is what ends up kind of unravelling everything. Victoria, um, now might be a time to unravel those themes you had. Sure. Uh, so I, there, I was reading up on this, and it, it makes sense to me, but I noticed an, an additional one. So it's called Bound because everyone is... It, the, the movie's kind of about everybody being bound to their role, to their life, in, in such a way that they are kind of trapped in it. Violet is trapped and wants out of her life as this mafioso's girl. Uh Caesar is trapped and bound by his own, uh, like, wanting this respect when really he's just a low-level money launderer in a literal way, actually, which I think is delightful. Um, I love that, too. And and, uh, Corky is kind of this ex-con, burned in love, like, not really sure what to do, and and kind of bound and and caught up in her own way. And it's really about the all of them trying to escape and you can extend it to almost everybody in the film is sort of bound up by their their loyalties and their their understanding of what they should be doing and and what they would rather be doing and but it's really the main three that, that you got to care about caesar is desperately tr- wanting and trying to remain bound and move up in that area and is destroyed for it while corky is is trying to come out of the the kind of closet the kind of bound element that she has put herself in emotionally to come out and like be with another person in a, in a meaningful trustworthy like loving way while she well, gets uh, tied up in the closet uh, of that so again well Bukowski's not yeah. exactly subtle yeah no not at all just like the, uh, the 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 plumbing scene with all the water everywhere not exactly subtle uh, and then Violet is, is bound up as well but there's another layer of this that I realized I was watching because cultural stereotypes would have had the corky being the butch lesbian should have been the more aggressive the more masculine and and there's this expectation of what she should be while violet being the more feminine of the two is uh, almost culturally stereotyped to be the receivee uh if you will but throughout the entire film you find out that violet is ridiculously confident and uh, and assertive whenever the the chips are down and she is way way more of that kind of forward leaning uh character than Corky is to the point where Violet ends up being like 
a, the, the main character for most of this. And while the whole story is about the two of them trying to trust each other and, and find, well, not even trying to, they trust each other from the beginning and in the end, that trust paid off because they knew that they could, but there was still doubt. And and in the end, they just needed to get rid of that doubt. But it's the fact that the, the two of them even go against the stereotypes of lesbians for their particular depictions, that they are going against the bounds even of those boxes that would be more like community-based is delightful. I love it. And that, that's really it. It's, it's a pretty straightforward uh, reading of the themes, but that's like why it's called that, but it goes several layers deep. There's one other element though. Um, it's even on the, the box art that I have on my Blu-ray, but in the scene where Violet is surrounded by the money drying, the money itself is like chains tying her and Caesar to that apartment and to each other. And the money ends up being such a big part of them all being stuck in this ridiculous situation. It's so much more of like a MacGuffin because the, the money to the girls is a means to their real prize. While uh, I guess you could also say that for Caesar, the money is his means for greater respect in the, in the business. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can open locked doors. Kind of like Corky's earrings. Sharon, you had a lot to say about colour. I did, yes. Okay, so this is, like, the colour schemes in this are not dissimilar to the colour schemes in The Matrix. And this is where I think the, the cinematography side of things come in, but also the way that the Wachowskis visually tell stories. They use colour brilliantly. It's one of the things I love about them. So the, the colour scheme for Bound, which you would expect to see in a, in a noir, is largely black and white, with an awful lot of accent in red, and a tiny, tiny little bit of green. In their world, you can't buy freedom, but you can steal it. I'll stop. Oh, hang on, just read the tagline for the other poster. Violet and Corky are making Laundry Day a very big deal. What? That is a terrible poster. Oh my gosh, that's like a Rocco's Modern Life joke. Laundry day is a very dangerous day. For money, for murder. For, for each other. Okay, that's that's slightly better. For music, for manslaughter. Oh, I love the, uh, is this the uh, Spanish poster? The uh, bound, torbido ingano. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, continue. So, yeah, so starting with green, there is a... a Delib well, I'm assuming it's deliberate, but there is a flip of a, what you were saying about subverting expectations, Victoria, of what red is supposed to mean and what green is supposed to mean in this. So generally speaking, out in the world, red is your warning sign and it's stop, and green is your everything's clear, you can go. And in this, that is reversed. So whenever you see green, there's a, a transitional moment going on where the person involved is given an opportunity or it is suggested that they do stop and think and this tied for me this tied to the theory of green in the matrix being the mind that this is you need to actually rationalize this situation rather than letting your emotions take you down the road that you're going on so you've got green in caesar's office on the walls the light in Violet's kitchen, the door leading out of the apartment that Corky's renovating, uh, the walls in the apartment block hallway when they move between the two apartments, and the plants by the elevator. 
There are also facets of green in the drinks cabinet, especially the scotch, and there are tiny little flashes on the money, but by and large, the money is not green, it's black and white. It's, it's a sort of a faded black and white, but that's how it looks on screen. So all of these think points when people have to slow down and figure things out, look for the green because that's when that turns up. Red, on the other hand, is everybody just kind of running with their emotions and driving ahead and it absolutely surrounds Violet. She is she's made to dress in red she has red on the walls in her apartment there's red in the elevator when she first meets Corky and the you get all of this red just flooding into this black and white world as soon as we come in uh, Corky's cleaning out a bath in the apartment she's renovating and it floods with rusty water this this kind of pinky wall that she's painting white in the apartment and there's there's wallpaper in that other apartment that's kind of a maroon color as well Corky is painting over it with white because she is effectively creating this pure clean world for Violet to escape into for her to get out of the red and into the white and when black turns up it's it's always mixed in with white you get a lot of geometric patterns where you've got black and white tiles or there's black and white art or the the mob guys are wearing black suits with white shirts which is kind of I saw that as like the balance between them having this they are clad in black that's the color of their work but the white is this kind of respectability that they know to still carry with them so that they can pretend that they're all above board Johnny is distinct in that particular group. He wears a grey suit, suit. Yeah. with a t-shirt underneath which is mostly mottled black. There's a little bit of white in it, but it's mostly mottled black and Johnny cannot do this respectability balance. He is all is so tied up and identified with the mafia elements of, of what he does that he cannot separate the two. This is probably why he's so amazed when Caesar betrays everyone, because it's really off script for him. Whereas Gino, the old war horse, is like, oh, one of these. You get the overhead shot of the money, which has been hidden in black rubbish sacks, being dropped into white paint cans. So it's being enveloped in this respectability by being hidden away, hmm. which Caesar then reveals later on. When the, uh, the mafia guys fall, Gino falls on a red floor, Johnny falls on a black floor, and Caesar falls on a white floor because the paint's been spilt everywhere. That, by the way, is another absolutely magnificent shot when uh, Violet uh, confronts him after a, a fantastic negotiation. Uh, sh uh, he does the usual, you're not going to shoot me, baby. If you were going to shoot me, you were gonna sh you'd have shot me already. And it's like, your bargaining posture is extremely dubious, sir. She literally said... Get out of here, Caesar. I'm going to let you go. Run away far so I don't have to kill you. Uh, and he just doubles down on the whole bravado thing in a kind of a, I know you, you're just Martian. And her whole you don't know shit moment is an absolute fist in the air triumph. Mm. And as apparently at the LGBTQIA uh, film festival that they attended, the Wachowskis, the, the lesbians were stomping on the floor with <laughs> glee. At this ending. Well, it's even a step 
further because Caesar is playing the role of the, the well-tread role in the movie of being like, I know you, you're really in love with me. Mm. It's not just the respectability. He doesn't fundamentally believe that she doesn't want to be with him. And and that's why he's like, I know you, you're not going to do anything. He's She's essentially that saying- that good at convincing him on a yeah, daily basis. And he's that good at convincing himself what he wants to believe. And when she says, you don't know shit, it is so, so good. <laughs> totally is. I, I, I made a note that while Corky is kind of the hero in this, I love the fact that Violet gets to finish off the story. Yeah. And well, that's her bullet to fire. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But, but yeah, you're absolutely right, Victoria. That, that sense of his own... It's not immortality, but that, that feeling that he is the big I am and that Violet couldn't possibly not be in love with him. It all ties in with this ego reputation that he's built up around himself, in spite of the fact that Violet explicitly states she was given to him effectively because she was an employee of a club he was put in charge of. There is no point in the, in the five years that they've been in a relationship, which coincidentally is the same amount of time that Corky was in prison, so they have mm -hmm. both been in their own bindings for a similar period of time, uh, but that that did not occur out of any choice of hers. She was in one place and she was moved by the mob to another place. Yeah. She still could have said to Caesar, believe it or not, you piece of shit, just still gonna burn! But yeah, so you've, and then you've got like the, the, there's red blood spattered all over everything. It, it covers wherever there's white. You can pretty much guarantee there's going to be red spray over it at some point. The money gets covered in red. They had to get just the right kind of it. paint and just the right kind yes. of corn syrup blood. Because if you mixed the blood with the wrong kind of paint too quickly, when he falls over, it becomes pink. Yes, absolutely. They had to use like a really specific type of gloss mix. That paint. would separate itself then, like oil uh, and water. Yeah, and then yeah. do something different with the blood than they normally would have so mm. that they wouldn't um, so that they wouldn't blend together. But it's a, like I said, it's a magnificent, it is a classic Hollywood oh, shot. It looks amazing. And then you've got like, there's, there's red lights popping up here, there and everywhere and, and when Violet and Corky are making their plan or talking about the plan in the truck, you've got a stoplight in mm. between them off in the distance. So you've always got this this red there's a red exit sign right towards the end that's like this is your last chance to turn left and get the fuck out of dodge before it all goes wrong um but yeah so so, so if, if if lesbians being celebrated was the thing that year the academy would have recognized this because it is actually evocative of a lot of classic films yeah. mm -hmm. uh, but that year i believe jerry Maguire did well and uh, as good as it gets did well yeah. But somebody said in the in the either in the commentary or one of the backstage uh, the, the behind the scenes pieces that if Joey Pant uh, Joe Pantoliano was going to get an Oscar nomination for anything, it should have been for this. But nobody at the Academy saw it. It makes me sad. I didn't watch this movie for so long. It was so fucking good. But you have it <laughs> Your now fault because nobody watched this movie for long. It just it just did not. You know. Yeah. And you have it now. You all mm. have it now. <laughs> 
find yeah. it. I love that she runs down the stairs as he's chasing her like he's some kind of American psycho, and then uh, she just gets back on the elevator. And just that look of like so many stairs, and just as he goes back up, it's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, there is one more example of red, by the way, and like I said, if we're assuming here that red is the indicator for full steam ahead let your emotions carry you forward with what you're doing Corky's truck is red mm. she uses part of the money at the end to buy a big old a red brand new brand truck. new version See, of the same thing I thought that, that was then that was almost yeah. a betrayal of her character because one of the first things that uh, Violet says about her when she's just sort of trying to size her up is you remind me of my uncle he always used to use his hands whenever he had to make fix something and put something back together I bet your car is 20 years old and she's like it's a truck uh, 63 Chevy 63 Chevy and it's yeah. like yeah she's been repairing this old ass truck for a long long time and, uh, and I like that's something that I can like I am a shit handyman but I'm very good at making things last also fixing a truck for 30 Three years. I don't think she started when she was born. <laughs> I mean, she might have done. Well, all right, hey. let me rephrase. Keeping a 33-year-old truck going yeah. is a pain in the ass. Her, her original 63 Chevy was also red, but it was like a faded yeah. red, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it? what Sharon yeah. said originally, right yeah. before I started focusing on the, the dodge yeah, 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 or whatever that's good. it was. Well, and the, and uh, Violet's lipstick is red, and I think that that's really relevant because it gets smudged at one point, which is a thing that I just never remember ever seeing in a movie, like, because she had the gag in her mouth, so the lipstick got smudged all over, and she is reapplying it in the bathroom right before she does the, the cell phone call that, like, really pivots her role into being much more in charge of the situation. I love that bit because she's talking on the phone whilst applying the makeup. It's like she's putting on her war paint and multitasking at the same time and totally owning the situation. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's another representation of that. She's about to go out there and she wants them to be this like high emotion kind of state because it's part of her like armor, part of her weaponry to a certain extent. It's a, it's masterfully done. And and that's it. The 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 getaway is is rather than uh, the the obvious betrayal. And they don't even they don't even string us along by having Violet do the shifty eyes. She just talks quietly uh, to like she makes sure that their getaway is going to be clean by just being responsible and respectable to the remaining alive mafiosi that like the finger cutter. Uh, she, you know, just sort of talks to him and says, I've just got to get away from all of this. My partner brought a new truck which has shitty gas mileage. Uh, and then she uh, and then she kisses him in a kind of thank you for everything you've done. And he is under her spell. Like, mm-hmm. up until that point, you've been really worried because he starts to smell bullshit in everything Caesar says. And it's like, as, as you said, Victoria, every man in this film is totally Mickey under her would spell. would never suspect her under any circumstances. He's got in his head from jump that Violet is this incredibly sweet, adoring lady who just wants to do the best for her man. And she's so beautiful and glamorous that when she kisses him, he's like... Humana, humana, humana. I'm not going to go chasing after you and cut your fingers off, madam. He shorts out. It's yeah. it's it's just what she does. And, and then the, the the final lines in the film are that she gets into the truck with Corky, and Corky sort of looks at her sideways and goes, "You know the difference between you and I?" And she goes, "No." 
Neither do I. And then they just drive off with Tom Jones blaring on the stereo. <laughs> She's I, a lady. I just love the fact that this was depicted to me as a lesbian heist movie, and I did not realize that the heist was to save the lesbian. It's perfect. It was descriptive, but in a way I wasn't expecting. Yeah. I mean, frankly, even if they hadn't got the money, if the money had disappeared down a mine shaft with the corpses, they would still have been like, let's just go. This is fine. So it's 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 a bonus more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the the real prize was the lesbian lover we met along the way. Exactly. Isn't it always? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the two point one million dollars in nineteen ninety six money sure doesn't hurt. Mm. But yeah, um, you can make yourself a little lesbian heist movie. Well, you that. can make one third of it. The first act <laughs> would be pretty good. Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, first act's all you need. Mm. Although I think, um, was it Gina Gershon said she, for, for a few years afterwards, she kind of had this idea that they could maybe do a sequel where the two of them run out of money and decide to run a big card scam in, <laughs> in, LA, in uh, Las Vegas. Matt, the next Oceans film, they turn up as sort of the old <laughs> oh, pros. Oh, yes! Oh, my God, yes! That would That'll be, be cool. pretty incredible. Fine with that. Okay, so any more on Bound? No, it's fucking great. Go see it. It is. It is. Uh, and also, also... DVD is a dreadful disservice to films. I have only ever seen this film on DVD up until now. I did not realize how magnificent it looked until I finally saw the Arrow version. Go out of your, if you live in England, see if you can get at least rent from Arrow Films this version. I don't know if you'll be able to do that in America, but uh, you said you've got, you got the Blu-ray. How does it look? Yeah, I was going to say, the, the Blu-ray is pretty easily obtainable here in the States, and it looks fantastic. Excellent. You said it's got the the uncut it, it It has the R-rated and the unrated. Well, uh, it's definitely worth watching the unrated version, because why would you deny yourself all of that stuff? Especially if you're a lady who likes other ladies. Mm-hmm. Whew. Or if you appreciate the female form, you know, just at all. Yeah, yeah. It's very well shot. <laughs> and also, just to demystify it ever so slightly, Jennifer Tilly was talking about how she and Gina were just sort of like on the bed and being getting pally with each other. And she's just like, could you move your hand and just cover my cellulite? Just, just while they were going through. Just like, because she's done love scenes with men before and it always felt awkward, this actually felt really comfortable. It didn't hurt that Gina Gershon came to her trailer about an hour and a half before they were due to shoot it with a bottle of tequila and they yeah. together. <laughs> oh, tequila saves the day. I've never really done Jennifer Tilly's voice before. Now I want to do it all the time. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you've never done tequila before. I mean... First one, then the other. Okay, right. <laughs> so... Just time to thank our $15 sponsors as per usual every week. And I want to say a big hello and welcome to Anthony Flores, the most recent. Tell me if I was mispronouncing your name there, Anthony. And in fact, anyone. If I ever mispronounce your name, let me know. I'd much rather know so I can work on doing it right. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Anthony Flores, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, Dave Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finn Barnicol, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, 
Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Uh, that will be all on Bound, uh, but I think we're going to be coming back uh, with the Bukowskis at least one more time this year, because I really would like to cover Speed Racer at some point. You know I'm coming back for that one if you want me. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen it yet? <laughs> I can't recall. No, I acquired the Blu-ray like two weeks ago when we were talking about it on one of the other That's Matrix cool. podcasts, so I'm just like, I'm just waiting. Just waiting for that one. I'm waiting for well, the phone I mean, to the ring. The energy of being able to just watch it and make notes and just be this enthusiastic about it, I w- I'd say that's a pretty good process, so yeah, go for it again. Um, I would also <laughs> say, uh, if at any point you get if you get migraines, don't watch Speed Racer when you have a migraine. Oh my god, no. Oh I no. I actually finish you off. Ooh, but, I mean, what okay. a way to go. Yeah, I... <laughs> Okay, and we will be back next week with a trio of beloved Don Bluth animated classics. The Secret of Nim, An American Tale, and The Land Before Time. But beware, this episode, because of its subject matter, gets dark and heavy. Heavier and darker than this neo-noir. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. <laughs> okay, now you I sound like a character from a from, from like a Tim Burton movie. You, you, you slipped into the Corpse Bride's worm a little bit there. Oh yeah, no, that you, that's Peter Laurie. <laughs> Rick, you can't leave me behind, Rick. It's sl- yeah. I mean, Jennifer Tilly could play a gender flip version of Peter Laurie in Casablanca. I'm sure. I, I mean, I'd watch that movie. <laughs> watch new pussycat. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Watch new pussycat. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's not unusual to go out at any time. But when I see you out and about, it's such a. Me. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, she's all you'd ever want. She's the kind I'd like to flaunt and take to dinner. She always knows her place She's got style, she's got grace She's a winner She's a lady Whoa, whoa, whoa She's a lady Talking about that little lady And the lady is mine But she's never in the way Always something nice to say
She can take what I dish out and that's not easy Well she knows me through and through And she knows just what to do and how to please me She's a lady other hand when we went back <laughs> holy shit <laughs> it's not unusual fades out <laughs> it's dead quiet People went fucking insane. No one could handle it. 